We are in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Elizabeth's going to read two great stories starting in verse 13, and she will read two incredible stories within the story of the gospel. Elizabeth. Thank you, Bill, and good morning, church family. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked him. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. Thank you, Elizabeth. These are two very familiar stories, the story of children and the story of the rich young ruler. It's interesting, the story of the rich young ruler is in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you're familiar from our conversations in the past, the Gospels can be divided into two groups, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which really give a chronology of Jesus' life. And then the Gospel of John is separate, which talks about the divinity of Jesus, so it's kind of separate. 
The rich young ruler is in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and sometimes he's referred to as rich, sometimes young, and sometimes a ruler. So we talk to him about him as a rich young ruler, but he's not always referred to as rich, young, and a ruler, but he was, and different of the gospels share it differently. Now, what I wanna do today is share four things I want you to learn from these passages and four applications. Now you go, that's eight things. I don't want you to walk out with eight things because if you walk out with eight, you'll do none of them. But I want you to take one of the principles we learn and one of the applications we learn and walk out. So can you do that? If you write them all down before you leave this morning, circle one of the uh, principles and circle one of the applications. Will you do that? And I'll be happy if you just get one of them. If you get all eight, that's great. Practice one today and this whole week, practice another next week. Don't think you can do all of them at once, but they're all interconnected. So it's interesting, there's two um, examples in these passages, if I can use a big words, that are juxtaposed together. They're juxtaposed, which means you normally don't think them to be together. The first is children and wealth. Now, remember this book, the book of Mark, was written by Mark in the city of Rome, probably 40 years, 30 to 40 years after Christ rose from the dead. So this wasn't like it, he wrote it the day after. It wasn't like right after Easter, Mark is writing down all the stories. This was dozens of years later. So the people that hear these stories about children and about the rich young ruler were not there. They're learning these stories and they have grown up in a Roman context. And this is interesting. In the Roman context, children had no standing. Children were nothing. Even the children of wealthy people were nothing. The servants had more standing. You could do anything you wanted to your children. You could kill them, you could send them off, you could abandon them, you could commit infanticide, you could do anything you wanted. Then when they became an adult at some point in their teens, a little different than the way the Jewish believed, then they would have standing. So the children had no standing. The people who had standing were the wealthy, the rulers, the young, young not in children, young meaning in vitality, they had standing. And so Mark puts these two stories right next to each other and it would not have been normal to do so where you have the helpless and the powerless next to the powerful. And he brings these two together. Now he juxtaposes two other things in this story, and that is a camel and an eye of a needle. Now the camel is the largest animal in Israel. There were elephants in other parts of Asia and other parts of Africa, but in Israel, the largest animal, or let's call it the largest being that they would have access of knowledge to was the camel. The very smallest thing that they would know would be a needle. Now we may not think of this, but the needle was one of the most important inventions of the ancient world, as was the wheel, as was the wagon, as was fire. But the needle allowed them to create fabrics and not just use hides. And even with hides, they would use needles. Needles were important. And the eye of the needle is even smaller than the needle, isn't it? Those of us who are older struggle with putting in 
the thread into the eye of the needle. So you have this the very smallest, this the very biggest, and he juxtaposes these two things, children and wealth, needle and camels. And he says, there is a connection here. So let's look at it. Can I give you the four thoughts first, the four principles? Number one, the lure of wealth can overcome the lure of the kingdom. The lure of wealth, the bait, the um, little piece of shrimp that is thrown into the water, the chum of the water, wealth can overcome the lure of the kingdom. In other words, we can be more interested in wealth than we are in the kingdom. And this is just a principle of life. This is a principle that is throughout. Access to the kingdom is by grace, not by works. That's a simple concept that we believe. It's in all throughout the Bible, but we need to understand it today as we begin to look at wealth versus non-wealth, the kingdom of God versus the non-kingdom of God. Access is by grace. Number two, Number two is this, you cannot buy an inheritance. This is interesting. He goes, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's a dishonest question because there's nothing you can do to inherit anything, right? There's nothing you can do. A couple of uh, weeks ago, well, around Christmas time, Elizabeth and I decided to update our wills and update all those things that are round wills, surrogates, and living wills, and trusts, and all. I mean, doing a will nowadays is not like it is in the movies where you just say, I give it all to so-and-so. You gotta write all this stuff up page after page, but it's important. We have kids, we have grandkids. We have things to do. We wanna give money to the Lord and all the rest. So we pulled it all together, but can I tell you that my kids are gonna inherit some money if God allows us to have some money at the end of the day. And there's nothing they can do to get it because it's coming from us to them. Do you see that? They can come to me and go, what must I do to inherit? Well, they're a child, so they're going to inherit. So the way you inherit is to be a child, not to do anything. It is given to you, eternal life is given to you. The inheritance that Elizabeth and I give to our children and our grandchildren, and hopefully we live long enough for our great-grandchildren, will be given to them. Do you see that? So it's really kind of a tough question. What must I do to inherit? The inherit is a wrong word. What does it take to have eternal life? Now, number three, let me give you this one. The danger of possessions is that they rob us of faith. There is nothing wrong with possessions. We're gonna learn it in the application, but possessions can rob us of faith. Possessions often separate us from God. The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Okay, that's the subject. Thy will be done, that's this subject, on earth, that's this subject, as in heaven. Okay, this is the subject we're talking about. Give us this day our daily bread. You don't need to pray that to have bread this morning. 
did you? Did you need to pray that to have bread this morning? No. Why? Because you're wealthy enough to have bread this morning. Forgive us our debts. Many of you in this room have no debts. Oh, maybe it's a spiritual debt, but yet maybe you don't have physical debts. You see, you may not think you need God because you have things that God provides. But here's the problem. Who gave you the assets to buy the bread or make the bread? This is what we forget about. God tells us he gives us every day, doesn't he? Every day is a gift from God. Everything you have is a gift from God. But you say, I worked hard, I went to FAU, I studied hard, I got a degree in engineering, I got a master's degree, I even got a partial graduate degree and I work hard. Who gave you the brains? Do you realize most people can't go to college? How did you even get to college? I got to college on a scholarship. Well, why did you get a scholarship? Because, and let me tell you, everything's a gift. Everything is a gift. And we have this problem, we who are wealthy, and everybody who is listening to me is wealthy by the Bible terms. And if you're watching online, you're definitely wealthy because you got a computer or a big screen TV in front of you. So you're definitely wealthy. We forget sometimes that it's all a gift. It is all a gift. And sometimes we think that gift was because of something we did, and because we do it, it separates us from the giver of the gift. Because I did it. God didn't give it to me. And the minute we think of that, we have lost control of ourselves. Please understand that. If you think that what you do is because of just you, and it was, I realize, you know, we all fight over this white privilege thing. Every one of us has privilege. Some of us have more privilege based on many things, and our color may be a part of that, but we have incredible privilege. And that privilege should draw us to God, not separate us from God. The reality is, the rich young ruler came and his possessions separated him from God instead of drawing him to it. Now, the fourth principle is this. Remember the children. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God's economy is not our economy. We need to understand that. Now, think of this if I could. Back then, if you were wealthy, most likely you were wealthy because you had land, land, land. You had vineyards on the land, you had property on the land, you had tenants on the land. You were wealthy because you had land. If you were not wealthy, you did not have land. Or you were a tenant farmer, or you had a little piece of garden. So I'm wealthy, I have a big piece. What does that mean? There is only a small amount of resources that can be allotted out. If I own the land, that means you can't own the land. And if you own some land, that means you can't. So there's only so much land that can be owned, and it was owned by a very few people who were wealthy. And the rest of us were not wealthy. So there was the wealthy class, and the poor class. We don't live that way anymore, do we? 
because our wealth predominantly is not based on land, is it? You can start a business and create wealth with no land. And never, and nowadays you can create wealth with nothing. What is software? What is the financial markets? You're creating wealth with nothing. You know, it's like you own stock, you own a piece of paper. I'm like, give me something to own. You know, I want something to own, land or something. But now you could be wealthy in almost any way, right? So everybody has opportunity towards that. So there isn't a small group of wealthy and a large group of poor. There is a large group of people that really are wealthy compared to what the Bible says in the Bible times. We all have wealth because we are not working today for our food tonight. That's what poor means. You work today for food tonight. Very few of us, if any of us, are working today for food tonight. In fact, you're not even working because of a very modern concept called the weekend. When you don't work, it's an amazing thing. Now, think of God's economy. So there's this economic thought that's been around for 400 years. It's called the tragedy of the commons. Tragedy of the commons. Commons is the British way of saying a park, public lands. And so what the tragedy of the commons is, is that if, I, if, if the city owns a lake and I fish the lake out, then that means there's no fish for you, right? I have taken all the fish, and so I've outfished the lake. So the tragedy of the commons is in the common, you don't have any fish left for your family. Or if I go and hunt in the hunting grounds and I kill all the uh, animals, you can't hunt and get food for your family. That's called the tragedy of the commons. There is no tragedy of the commons with God because God's resources are unlimited. See, we think that if God gives to this group, they're sitting in the front of church. Every week these people sit in the front of church, so God must really love them more than anyone else. They're in the front. And they all went to FAU almost. This is terrible, <laughs> right? So it's like God must, you know, and then the rest of you guys out back there in the dark. Yeah, thank you, they're waving at me. Finally, I see them. They're awake. Well, maybe a little trickles back. This is not God. God's got as much for you as they do for them. God has got as much for me and Elizabeth who kind of run this, you do all this, you know, and you go, oh, you're paid. This is what you do for a living. You're supposed to be spiritual. God's got as much for us, has as much for you as he does for us. Because it's not about us. It's never about us. It's about him. And his resources are unlimited. You see that? And we inherit those resources. Now, before we get to the application, let's look at um, a very big misconception about the kingdom of God. So 200 years ago, the most famous pastor, early 1700s in our country was a man named Jonathan Edwards. A great man, fabulous pastor. He preached a sermon that's the most famous sermon in the history of the United States until Martin Luther King started preaching. Most famous sermon in Billy Graham, and it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have any of you ever heard of it? 
Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, it's a great sermon, but it has been misstated so many times. So can I tell you how it's stated nowadays? And I heard a guy preach this once. I was a little kid, I was so scared. I was like, if you can scare people into the kingdom, he was doing it that night. So here's the view. Here's God. God created us. God's the beginner, God's sovereign. God created human beings. Human beings sinned, and God got angry about it. An angry God, right? God got angry, and God said, you have fallen short, and you are going to hell. Okay? So far, so good. But as you are about to be dropped by God into the pit, here comes Jesus, the hero and he snatches you out from the pit of hell just before your feet get burned. That's the sermon. Now that's not Jonathan Edwards' version of it, but that's the modern version. Then now you go off into the kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you that's wrong? Let me tell you the right version of the kingdom of heaven. There's an almighty God who loved us and created us, same beginning, and we sinned. And God understood this. Did you hear the song a minute ago, the same God? See, some people think there's an angry God up here and there's a loving Jesus down here. Can I tell you, Jesus came to fulfill the love of God, not the hate of God. The Bible says, for God so hated the world that he sent Jesus to help the people out who are on their way to hell. Did he say that? Is the kingdom of God filled with former people God hated? Or is it filled with people God loves? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So Jesus is fulfilling the plan of God as opposed to snatching everybody out where God failed in some way because he's so mad at us. So please understand, if you have an opinion of God that he is mad at you, go to John 3, 16, where it says, he loved us so much, he gave us his son. He gave us his son. He has not called me to give my children for your salvation. He did it. And it's important for us to understand that God loves us so much that Jesus is in the plan of God. He didn't come to thwart the mistake of God. Yes, we are sinners, and yes, we're on our way to hell, and yes, Jesus snatches us, but he snatches us because God had a plan for us, and God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. This is the Easter story we're gonna celebrate in two weeks, the story of Jesus coming to earth. Why? Because God loves us. Not because Jesus is just the Superman helping us. Yes, he's the savior of the world because God sent him. It is a partnership. We are Trinitarians. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and then the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at some application, can we? The question is, what anchors your life? The application here is, what anchors your life? 
What are the things that you have that anchor? The big ones are this in the modern world. It's pride, which goes all the way back to the beginning. It's achievement, which is distinctly a Western concept these days. We love, you know, my son, the lawyer, my daughter, this, my this, you know, it's achievement, right? We talk, it's achievement is important. Now, it's all good, but is that what you're anchoring your life on? Then the other is money. Are you anchoring your life on money? We'll come back to money in a minute. Are you, here's one that people are anchoring their life on, their family. Now, family is incredibly important. You're asked, telling me, I mean, I live for my family. I do all, we got a huge family. We do family events. We love family. But the family is not the anchor. And you can put whatever thing you want in there. We need to understand that Jesus has to be the anchor. Jesus has to be the anchor of your life because at some point in time, these other things will come and these other things will go. And if you're anchoring yourself on these things, it is shifting sand. You just can't do it. Jesus is the rock. You need to anchor on the rock. Number two, here's a really cool thing. Jesus invites us to be a part of the kingdom of God. And it's not about your money. Either negatively you got to give it away or positively you got to give it to the church. So, it's not that the money's negative, get rid of it, it's bad, money's bad, get rid of it. So here's what we think. Because Jesus asked the rich young ruler to get rid of his money, that he's asking all of us to get rid of our money. Please understand, it's not what he is doing. God asked Abraham to kill his son Isaac, didn't he? God is not asking you to kill your son. That was a very specific thing for a very specific person. And it was important. And it's not what he's asking us to do. And here's the amazing thing is, and this is something that's hit me all my life when I've read this story, is that a young man comes to Jesus and walks away a non-believer. He comes right to God and walks away a non-believer. It's not about us. People have said, oh, if I had witnessed better, that person would have come to Jesus. Can I tell you, people have come to Jesus and walked away. So please understand, we need to tell people about Jesus, but if they choose to walk away without faith, it's their choice. Please don't carry the guilt of other people. You got enough to worry about yourself. Why? wear the guilt of other people. It's just not gonna happen. Number three, you can detach from earthly things. People go, how do you do this? It is possible. Peter did it. The other disciples did it. Abraham did it. Remember the story of Abraham and Lot? And Abraham said, Lot, here's the whole countryside. You take whatever you want and I'll take the rest. And Lot took the best land and Abraham was okay with it. You can detach yourself. Abraham stayed an incredibly wealthy man, but he detached himself from his wealth. And let me just tell all of us, 
we need to detach ourselves from our wealth. Whatever that wealth is, that could be a wealth of education, that could be a wealth of talent, that could be a wealth of family, that could be a wealth of money, that could be a wealth of business. You need to somehow detach yourself and realize these are possessions that you need to possess, not that should possess you. And when you do that, you attach yourself to the one you should be attached to, who is Jesus Christ. So we should be attached, but attached to Jesus Christ, not detached from, or detached from Jesus. We should be detached from our possessions. Now, the last one is critical. The gospel, which is the story of this whole thing, is the power of God, not the giving or withholding of your wealth. Your power is not in your wealth, whether you give it or you withhold it, is not the power. The gospel is the power. So let's look at this. Money can show our humility, generosity, or money can show our pride. It's my ownership. I own it. You see that? And so please be careful. People go, oh, you got to give all your money away. I don't believe that. I believe what you do with money, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of the wrong thing that is the root. The money can be used for things. And so don't think that I'm standing up here saying, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. But let me tell you, you better be giving something to the poor. And you need to be giving something to the church. And you need to be giving something to the foster care. And you need to be giving something because God has given us so much that we need to be generous. Because generosity shows humility. And the Bible says we are to be humble before the Lord. Stinginess shows pride. It's mine. I made it. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I made it. I'm going, What? The stocks went up like this. Like, you had anything to do with that? And I used to own, you know, at 100, and now I own at 1,000, and you just add zeros after that. I'm going, wow, what is that? No, it is not yours. You have been a steward of it. It's yours for a moment. If you have your Bibles, I just want to turn to another passage that is so critical for us, and it's in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. This gives us the theology behind the story. The theology behind the story. And it's Paul writing to Romans. Mark is writing to Romans. So Paul and Mark are writing to the same people. Paul gives us theology, Mark gives us the stories, Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Number one, do not be ashamed of your belief and understanding of God and his son, Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What that means is nothing else is the power of my salvation. Nothing else gets me there except the power of the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Greeks were the Hellenization, so that's everyone else, that's us. 
and verse 17. For in it is the righteousness of God. It is revealed, what? From faith for faith. That is an amazing thing. He repeats faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by what? Faith. Ultimately, the righteous shall not live by their good deeds. The righteous shall not live by their money. The righteous shall not live by their generosity. The righteous shall not live by their goodness. The righteous shall live by faith. It ultimately is the faith. And here's the beautiful thing. That makes us all equal. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. What does that mean? John MacArthur said this years ago. I was with him once, we were with him together having dinner and we were talking about this very subject. And he goes, and we're talking about this, very the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He says, what does that mean? It means we're all equal. Because if I'm the first, I become the last. And if you're the first, you become the last. What does that mean? We're all equal. It doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven and that's all equality. What it means is our faith, your faith, plus nothing gets you to God, your faith in Jesus Christ. My faith plus nothing. Now your faith, and you have all these zeros after your name. My faith, I don't have any zeros after my, it means nothing. It's faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the first shall be last. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do you see that? And then you're humbled in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What that means is, that in God's eyes, we are all the same. Now in our eyes, we aren't, because we think the people in the front of the church are better than the people in the back of the church. And you really are. <laughs> I know these people, I love these people because they're always in the front. I love the people who sit in the front. But sitting in the front, as James tells us, is no better than sitting in the back, if you have faith. Do you believe that? Now, here's the thing. On uh, last Thursday, we started a, a new ministry to seniors. We can't call them seniors anymore, another word that's gone by the wayside, so we call them perennials. Anybody who deals with older people, like my age and older, we had a great time, didn't we? Who was there? Was anybody there? There was 125 of us there. There's a lot of older people that should have been there. We're gonna do it again in a couple of months. But I shared a story. I want to close with a story. I shared a story. When I used to go to India a lot, the country of India, especially in the small churches, not so much in the big cities, some of the small churches, they wanted to do something for you. They would always uh, want to do something. And they don't have a lot of money. And it's a place where it's amazing. They bring chickens still to the front of the altar, the offerings in the front, because that's where the livestock, I mean, chickens with, I've, I've, I've preached with chickens in front of me, live, living chickens tied up. It's unbelievable. So what they do is though, they give you a garland made if they're wealthy enough. And I mean that very tongue in cheek, it would be filled with carnations, live carnations, three or four or five deep all the way around. Yes, and there's insects in them and you're looking at them and you're nervous. If not, they'd made it out of plastic, but most were carnations. And I remember the first time this happened. So 
I'm about to speak, I'm coming in and they're doing all the singing and I don't understand the language, it's in Hindi or Telugu or Tamil or something. But the sermon's gonna be in English and so I'm waiting there kind of listening. I have this thing wrapped around my neck. And the pastor, the first time, was sitting next to me and he says, take it off, take it off. And I said, they just gave it to me. You know, we're having this little argument as they're singing and I'm going, they just gave it to me. He says, take it off. So I take it off and I put it down and I get up and preach. Afterwards, I said, why did you give it to me? And then why did you ask me to take it off? I don't get it. It's cultural, I don't get it. He said, we gave it to you because we wanna honor you. You take it off because you wanna honor us. See the humility there? See, you may come with all these things, but please understand that that doesn't mean much. They honored me and loved me more when I took it off and realized I was equal with them. Now, here's the truth. I had more cash in my pocket than they make in a year. But spiritually, we were equals. You see, so many of us walk around with garlands around thinking, hey, I'm better than you. The reality is, if you've been given a bigger garland than I've been given, you still take it off. And there's an equality, the first shall be last and the last first. And the equality is this, faith through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.